awards. Jeez. I mean, awards like Harvey Weinstein won Academy Awards. Okay. He's like the worst human on earth. Okay? <laughs> like we got to get our minds out of awards and just worry about what we're doing in our businesses and how we can serve the public better. And yeah. forget about awards. I mean, like you look sometimes at people say, oh, no, we need awards because that proves to the public that we're good. Okay. Well, here's my news flash. If you really are a shit broker, you can have a wall full of awards and you will still do a shit job. Okay. Right. I mean, all that awards proved is that you could romance a lender or you could romance a newspaper or you could romance somebody into giving you an award. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, Ron Butler, the Honorable Ron Butler. I don't uh, know why I like that. It sounds like he should be in politics. In any case, Ron and I have a fantastic discussion today. We talk about interest rates and inflation. We talk about the housing market. We talk about what's happening with Scotia Bank, bank failures. We talk about award shows. That's kind of fun. And then just mortgage tech companies and how they're pivoting. So as usual, conversation with Ron is always a ton of fun and lots of insights and a little bit of controversy. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Also, I'm talking to Tom Hall from Blue Mortgage about things you should do in a low supply environment on our Ask the Expert segment. Before I jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It is very easy for borrowers to use. It's got some cool features like smart docs and smart submission notes. And it's also connected to Lender Spotlight, which means you can search rates and guidelines. You should check them out at lendescom slash Finmo and check out this conversation with Ron. Hey, Ron, welcome back to the show. Ah, great to be here. Thank you for having me, Scott. So I got a few different topics I want to cover today. So we'll just kind of hit them one by one and just kind of see where it goes. So the first I want to just ask you about is sort of what are your thoughts on inflation and interest rates and like the recent numbers that came out as well as sort of interest rates? What are you noticing, seeing and like kind of who are you talking to about that stuff? Well, I mean, it's pretty clear that inflation in Canada is effectively licked. I mean, obviously it could flare up again. Obviously something could go wrong. But there's a pretty clear indication that, and we also get a lot of positives off base effect. In other words, we're now into the cycle of when inflation started. Like we're in the cycle of there was a bunch of inflation in uh, April of last year. So, you know, when we're talking about increase on prices, then it's not quite as bad. Don't get me wrong. When I say inflation seems to be licked, there's nobody who is buying groceries, who's buying a steak, who thinks inflation in Canada is beat. I mean, it's just still horrendously expensive. But from the Bank of Canada's perspective, I believe they would say if you got a few drinks at a Tiff Macklin, a couple of Shirley Templeson to the Bank of Canada governor, that he'd probably say he thinks he's got it under control. And if that's true, then he doesn't need to increase rates anymore. That doesn't mean he's going to drop rates. That doesn't mean he's going to cut rates. We might still wait till next year to see a rate cut. But the good news is that eventually fixed rates will start to come down in a meaningful way. They aren't as bad as they were six months ago. Obviously, every single rate was in the fives in the fall. And now there's a bunch of rates that start with a four. That's positive. I think we're in a little moment in time where, you know, the rates have had a little bit of upward movement because what is that? Why does it move around like it does? It's this simple. 
People talk about a bond market. A bond market is eight people, really eight people. Like there's 50 of them in theory, but there's really only eight people. Eight people in front of Bloomberg machines move the government of Canada bond market because there's only so many organizations that do a lot of trading that would cause it to change. And they have to form an opinion each day as to when the Bank of Canada governor will start to cut. And that's an opinion. That's a guess. So if they guess one day that they're sure he's going to cut in October, there's a different bond yield for that day. If they decide a week later, oh, Jesus, it looks like it's going to be January, then there has to be a different bond yield for that day. So, you know, we're not going to get away from fluctuation. But the truth is, if inflation continues to come down, and it's come down, obviously, statistically a lot, even though the price of stake is high, then there's not going to be any more increases. And eventually fixed rates will come down. Now, I don't think we're ever going to see 199 five-year fixed again. At least I won't. I'll be dead for sure, okay? You might see it. You'll probably see it, okay? But I don't think I'll see it. So, But will we see a rate with a three in front of it? Yeah, we'll probably see a high ratio rate with a three in front of it sometime next year. So a couple of questions about, so when you say there's eight people, like, are you talking about these like teacher's pension fund or who's buying these bonds that move? Sure, obviously the five big banks, okay? The five big okay. banks moving the market. And yes, you know, people who have vast pools of money, like teachers, like Gusta Depot, they can move a market. By the way, insurance companies by law, Canadian insurance companies have to have a certain percentage of Canada bonds, like whether it's a five or 10 or two or four, whatever it is, they have to have, a, you know, eight might be an exaggeration on the low side, but if we were to say- who But you're saying it is a much smaller number than we would expect. It is not- Yeah, the don't get me wrong. Like, you, you know, yeah. there's probably occasionally folks in the States at those big banks who are buying Canada bonds. There's probably somebody in Britain buying a Canada bond. There might be somebody in right. China buying a Canada bond. It's possible. But if we talk about who supplies the majority of the actual trades- um, it's it's probably less than a dozen people who are active at any time. So uh, interesting. So then, okay, how does this tie into what you're seeing in the housing market? So I've noticed a couple. You know, it seems like some of the markets seem to be picking up again, even though there seems to be a shortage of inventory. What are you noticing as well? Well, what's happened is that prices are going back up again. I mean, you've probably noticed it in the Okanagan. We've certainly noticed it in the GTA. The guys I read in the Vancouver area are definitely seeing it. You know, Calgary's on fire. Uh, you know, there's upward price movement. Prices are no longer falling. I mean, they might be falling in some, you know, area where they went particularly nuts. But even in some of the areas they went nuts in 2021, they're on the rise again. I mean, they're basically, they were very, very high. If you look at, say, somebody bought a house in 2021, late 2021 in Kitchener-Waterloo, they bought at a high level. It fell over the course of 2022. Now, in 2023, it's starting to go up back up again. And that's not the GTA. That's not downtown Toronto. But yeah, we've seen a lot of price recovery, not fully. You know, some of the people who bought in Uxbridge in the middle of nowhere, they took a beating. You know, they bought in January 2022, took a beating. But some of those prices are starting to recover. And definitely, the prices in a lot of regions where mortgage brokers work are starting to come up again. Is there a mm-hmm. huge volume of business? No. I mean, the TREB system, which is the biggest real estate board in Canada, was up month on month. But then, you know, March is supposed to be better than February, obviously. But if you look at his history, it was still, I think, an 11-year low in numbers of houses sold. 11-year low. So it's not big unit volume. It's just that we're starting to see price recovery. 
Are you seeing any multiple offer situations again on certain tons. price points? Tons, certain tons, certain tons, areas, that's what tons. I put to you. Tons, tons, tons. Same yeah. in Vancouver, tons, tons, tons. So, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so then how does this tie into, so one of our lender partners, Scotia, who we've done lots of business with, they're not doing as much business right now. Why don't you talk about your kind of thoughts on that and what you're seeing and how a lot of brokers, I don't think they understand actually like what the scoop is with this. Maybe you can dumb it down. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, there's a ton of rumors flying around. So, you know, let's settle out some of those rumors. Scotia's the third biggest bank in Canada. They're going to stay in the mortgage business as long as it makes financial sense for Scotia to work with mortgage brokers. And they were the premier lender of all mortgage brokers across this country for the best part of 15 years. I don't see them going anywhere. Okay, so all those rumors about, oh, things are terrible. No, let's just face facts. I've been around. I've been around. You know, I'm old. You know, I don't plan on vacations five years out. You know, I just, there's lots of things I don't do anymore. But I will tell you right. this, I've seen a lot. And times takes turns with very large companies. Times takes turns. You know, you've got a situation, for instance, this week, Scotia announced that they would change their approach to loan to value by which they'd run it through an internal bank score to arrive at exactly what the loan to value would be. Now, there was a lot of immediate reaction from brokers. Oh, this is terrible. We don't have certainty. We don't have this. We don't have that. It's awful. Well, it's, they're just full of shit. I mean, like at the end of the day, we might see this from every bank by the end of two years. We might see a whole different approach, like the regulator, the bank regulator, offices going to come out with a whole list of little tinkering that they want to do at some point in the summer or early fall. And this stuff could very well be part of it. So let's not all get mad at Scotia because they might just be doing things that eventually every single institutional lender is going to be doing. Now, to address the rate issues at Scotia, where the rates are higher than TD and some of the other lenders we have, you know, this is a real basic bank problem. Banks go through cycles and it's a pricing problem based on cost of funds. You know, Scotia grew their business, grew their lending business in a spectacular way. And it's certainly added to the bottom line of the bank. Banks make money when they lend. Don't let anybody fool you. I mean, mm -hmm. banks are in the business of lending money. But what happens, it's money lent on a spread. And when there is an incredible change in the cost of funds, some banks are going to be better positioned and some banks are not. Some banks spent a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of time and manpower building out things like small and medium business operations so that they are doing tons of current accounts for businesses, medium and small, and most current accounts pay no interest. Now, don't get me wrong. Companies can do good cash management, roll things through, you know, ladder GICs and do a lot of things to get some return on the money inside their company. But let's face it, if you don't have many small and medium business accounts, you don't have a lot of current accounts paying zero interest. And if you aren't a company that invested, like some of the other banks, invested a ton of money and effort into having a big GIC sales force and big GIC ability and stayed after it and worked it hard, I'm not saying Scotia didn't. Scotia is obviously bringing on deposits. But what I'm saying is, if you put the emphasis on that, mm -hmm. and here's the interesting part. For the last 10 years, that didn't pay much. That didn't have a great result, okay? For 10 years, we went through 10 years of ultra-low interest rates from about 2009 on, maybe 12 years. Ultra-low interest rates. When you've got ultra-low interest rates, all the money you spend developing a robust, effective retail deposit organization is kind of wasted if there's only right. about 
15 beeps of difference between wholesale money and you know this robust, powerful GIC selling operation, okay? But boom, one day, the Bank of Canada raises rates 17 times, you know, started at a quarter, now it's four and a half. And all of a sudden, this business you, you built that didn't make much profit for 12 years all of a sudden becomes fantastic for your operation. And that doesn't mean you were smarter than everybody else. That just means the timing worked out for you. So that's the situation with Scotia's rates. It's just a cost of funds problem. And eventually it will be resolved because, you know, after a while you can build out a good, robust retail deposit operation as well. So it's a temporary thing. It too shall pass. You can't expect a bank to lend money and lose money on it. That doesn't make sense. And by the way, they still have lots of money. They're very successful, very rich bank, third biggest bank in Canada, and they will do very, very well. It's just they have to refocus and make sure that they use their margins, whatever low cost money they have to support their renewal and their internal customer business. And it'll resolve itself. It'll be completely different in a year. Yeah. Okay. A couple of thoughts on that. First, I noticed credit unions go through these cycles much faster than a bank. So this is something, if you've been in this business for an amount of time, you'll see a credit union being extremely aggressive on lending. And then all of a sudden looking like, well, they don't want anything anymore. It has to do with their capacity to lend based on their balance sheet lender. Maybe for people listening that don't understand why having a whole pile, a GIC sales force and having all those deposits, how that ties into your ability to lend. Maybe can you explain that so that people can understand? I think I have an understanding of it, but I'm sure you probably can explain it better than me in terms of like how those things are related. Sure. Every financial institution needs to bring in deposits. If you're a balance sheet lender, you need to bring in deposits and you need to lend out money. In some cases, the way your bank evolved, you just had a robust operation that supported bringing GICs. And that might be a bank like TD or RBC. It's not to say Scotia didn't, it just was not an area that they highly specialized in and devoted money and resources to. And they were actually right. For 12 years, wholesale money was only 15 beeps difference than the cost of GIC money. So it really didn't make any banking sense to devote a lot of energy to it and a lot of resources. At a credit union, let's face it, in some cases, these operations are they're microscopic compared with a bank. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I remember, I remember. I think John Webster said once that you realize, you know, you can't talk to me about a credit union's rates because we do more mortgages in a week than they do in two years. So it's, right. it's not rational to talk about it. I mean, yes, they have a place in the market. They're good. They support us. They have great rates from time to time, and they deserve our support. And God bless the credit unions, but their capacity is just not anything like the big five banks. I mean, there's just no relationship. Right. And so the way that I've heard it described before is that it's to do with factoring. So if you've got X amount of deposits, you can lend out Y amount of loans, but you've got to keep that ratio has to stay in line. So if you lose some deposits, it can affect your ability to continue to write loans. And so that's how I've heard it explained to me before. Um, The right way to think about it is there's an ample supply of money. There's an ample supply of money looking for a home, looking to make a rate of return. It doesn't necessarily have to be a GIC. It can be wholesale. It can just be there's a pension fund that wants to get X rate of return for the next 30 days. Or in some cases, there's another product called Repo, where the money is actually reloaned every night. That exists. There's companies that do billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of transactions every single day. Basically, it's just a phone call or an email. Say, hey, 
we've got $6 billion of your money at 1.1%. Can we re-roll it tonight? Yes, no. What happens? Or and now I need 1.2. So that's not a GIC, right? That is just vast institutional money that is just sloshing around the world. And it needs- How do a- I get their phone number? I'm yeah, just kidding. Right. <laughs> I don't need like that much of a billion. Like a couple hundred million would be fine. I'm sure I could, you know, I could get where I want to go with that. Like um, my only point is that there's just so many sources of money for different durations. And, uh, right. you know, there's times when money's really, really available. And that will just, for the sake of argument, let's call it wholesale money. And, you know, it comes in, it gets lent out. The spread is what it is. And we're all happy with it. And yes, banks can lend, but what you're talking about is the banks can lend out a relationally high percentage of their own capital. Now, capital is different than money. Capital is, this is the bank's shareholders' capital. This is what the bank's share owners have in the bank. It's the bank's actual own money. And you can mm-hmm. lend a huge multiple in relationship to that. You may be able to lend 36 to 1. So the bank has capital of a billion dollars. You can lend out 36 billion. The bank has a hundred billion dollars of capital. Well, you see the numbers keep going up. So that's a relationship of what banks can lend out versus their own capital. But banks always have to bring in money in order to lend. It's not magic. There's not like a bunch of money elves in the basement, like those gnomes in uh, the friggin' uh, Harry Potter movies who are just magically creating gold, right? You got to bring the money in to put it back out again. So there's times when that kind of wholesale pricing is very good and everybody's happy. It's it's always about 15 or 20 beeps, not as good as GICs, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter when loans are going out and, and people are just happy to get their loans. But when it turns into 90 beeps difference, then there's a problem. So Right. Okay. So there's, the, a, that's, there's, a, there's a key distinction is between like the deposit GIC money versus institutional money that they could use to offset those because you're like you said so basically if i'm a bank and i can lend 36 to 1 and i realize i'm starting to get my ratios are going to 40 to 1 i'm like shoot i can't let anymore i can call these guys up and give me a billion dollars give me my overnight rate and you can keep doing that to keep your ratios in line however my pricing now is way more than if i would have had my own money so it starts to not make sense is basically like you can still lend but you have to lend 90 beeps higher than some of the other guys it's just a simple so by the way Scotia is happy to lend out money. Let's all get that really, really clear, okay? Like Scotia is very happy to lend on mortgages. They just have to get a certain price point, that's all. Okay, so this ties in my next thing, which I wanna talk about bank failures. So Silicon Valley Bank, you know, they failed. What are your thoughts on that? And is that a systemic risk, like in the US with all the smaller banks that they have? And how does that gonna play into, or is that just was a thing that happened now it's already in the past and people have forgotten about it? Well, I listened to your podcast with Dave LaRocky and a pretty good description of it. The really, really accurate description is that um, they just couldn't sell the base security. They had to run the bank. There's a guy named Peter Thiel, who is one of the great investors in tech in Silicon Valley. He's yeah, he's, he's, that guy's wicked smart, I've heard. Wicked smart, wicked odd, too. Like, can you imagine being so mad at a company that you would pay Hulk Hogan's lawyer to run a lawsuit against them to break the company because you were mad at them, okay? Like, Peter Thiel is a very, very smart guy, but he's a little odd, okay? So when you're Peter Thiel and you make a point of telling everybody who has serious money, who's a serious VC investor in Silicon Valley, to take your money out of that bank 
because I think they're going under and I took my money out. When you make a point of broadcasting that, you might just be shorting the bank stock. That's a possibility too, okay? You're allowed to do that, right? Are you allowed to, is that illegal? Because there are some guys that that's their thing is they'll find like a weak company and then they'll publicly short it and then go on every news station they can to say this company's gonna die and you should sell. And then they're just basically, so maybe you know the answer to this or you don't, but is this something you have to publicly disclose? So. If he was shorting, you know, that bank, does he have to yeah, disclose it? And 90% of the time they do. Like when you publish a report that says we hold a short position in this bank and these are the reasons why we think it's a piece of crap, then you have disclosed. Like, can Peter Thiel just openly say, I took all my money out because I'm worried about this bank? You're allowed to say that. You're absolutely allowed to say that. Can he have a short position? Probably can't, okay, because he's also just voicing his opinion. There's a lot of free speech availability in the United States that we don't always have here. Now, here's the one thing about shorting banks. Right now, at least last week when I looked, the most shorted bank in the world was TD Bank. And this is a massive mistake by these poor bastards who are shorting TD Bank, because what ends up happening is some of the guys in the States don't completely understand Canadian banks. They look at the fact that TD has a large position in a couple of operations in the U.S. whose share prices are being suppressed. And they say, uh-oh, uh, yeah, well, uh, the U.S. is the biggest at everything. So I guess if they're having trouble with their, some of their U.S. stuff, that's a good idea to short them. Well, these short artists in the States, they don't really understand Canadian banking at all. They don't understand that TD is the second biggest bank in Canada and that nothing's going to happen to it in Canada where most of its money is. And that mm-hmm. they're just going to take a complete beating on their short position on TD Bank. It's ridiculous. But they don't know that. They think, oh, no, right. they have a big investment in Schwab. Schwab's in trouble. So, yeah, yeah, I'm going to make money shorting TD Bank. Huge mistake. But in the case of that particular bank, one interesting take that I read was that this bank, Silicon Valley Bank, that went under. And by the way, this much, much, much smaller bank, Signature Bank in New York that went under. I remember the people who had stepped in to do some of the analysis of what had happened when the banks were taken over said, these guys did not hedge their positions properly or at all. So if you're talking about systemically important banks like all the big six Canadian banks, these people are immaculately hedged. In other words, things can go wrong. As David Rock pointed out, these people had way too much of one kind of U.S. Treasury and that you could only sell it at a discount. Now, here's the thing. If you're properly hedged, you could have a hedge against the discount. You could have hedged that risk and not had that right. problem. But there are sometimes competency issues with these banks. Competency issues that don't exist in the big six Canadian banks. The big six Canadian banks, I will assure you of one thing. They are perfectly hedged. They would not encounter those kind of problems. I'm not saying they're immune to any problem in the history of the world, but I am saying that they do not resemble the Silicon Valley Bank. They're a different animal. So you can't like, and yeah, interesting. Okay. So, okay. This is like a side thing. Maybe you know the answer to this and this has nothing to do with mortgages, but it interests me. I've heard of some people who like to put money into us treasury bonds as a short-term safe place to put it. Is that something that can be done as a Canadian or not? What do you know about that? It's impossible for any human being. I mean, the us treasury purchases are only available to a very select number of financial institutions in the world. So then you have to buy them from those institutions. But when I looked it up, you had to be an American citizen or you have to buy like exchange traded funds. And I don't know, so right. you, There's no human being 
even Warren Buffett can personally buy U.S. treasuries. I mean, you've got to be one of the selected dealers. Yeah, you could buy an exchange-traded fund that mimics them, absolutely, and that would work fine. But yeah, there's no human being can buy a U.S. treasury. Let's talk about what are your thoughts on award shows? And so I, we recently did this thing, Leads Not Awards, and so I messaged you about this. But so we got nominated for an award. And by the way, I don't hate awards, but I don't like awards where I feel like you've got to pay to play. And so we got nominated for an award and I was like, all the emphasis was on, hey, buy the table, buy the promotional material. And I'm like, I think this is just a money grab. And I feel like if I don't go to this event and spend the money that my chances of winning are practically zero. And so instead, we decided to do like a strategy session where people shared lead generating ideas. And I got some flack for that. Of course, you know, I get flack for things. And so they were like, hey, you know, you're crapping on these award shows that mean stuff to other people. Fair enough. But like, what do you think about the whole award show thing? Well, I've got like a 10 year history on social media is, is crapping all over awards. OK, like every single kind of award, you know, like when you are getting the award by the local newspaper in Prince Rupert, that you are the number two mortgage brokerage uh, recognized by the newspaper in Prince Rupert. I mean, like, can we get anything stupider than that? But as far as the awards shows are concerned, yeah, I've been a constant critic of it. I mean, there's some of the things that happen on these awards shows that are just weird, like a brokerage will win for best new brokerage that I personally know has been in existence for four years. Like, how the hell were you new? I mean, like, I, I don't know. How about this one? How about people winning awards for particular individual awards? And yet that person I know absolutely was fired by the three previous companies before the, the one they got the award with. I mean, like, there's just some ridiculous elements to the whole thing. Now, is it based on who supports who and who pays what for advertising or pays what for what? Hell yes, it is. Absolutely. Right. It, is. it has an enormous relationship to it. Is it completely bad? I mean, I think the award show that is not sponsored by a magazine is probably a little bit better. But yeah, I would agree with that. But we got to forget about awards. Jeez. I mean, awards like Harvey Weinstein won Academy Awards. Okay. He's like the worst human on earth. Okay. <laughs> like, we got to get our minds out of awards and just worry about what we're doing in our businesses and how we can serve the public better. And yeah. forget about awards. I mean, like you look sometimes at people say, oh, no, we need awards because that proves to the public that we're good. OK, well, here's my news flash. If you really are a shit broker, you can have a wall full of awards and you will still do a shit job. OK, right. I mean, all that awards proved is that you could romance a lender or you could romance a newspaper. Or you could romance somebody into giving you an award. Okay. Right. So yeah, I'm really hard on awards. Although I got to admit, when I see some people I know have done a fantastic job, there's people who I see getting you know nominated for some community service awards that I know have done incredible work. In yeah. those are harder to fake. I mean, if you have a community service award, like there's going to have to be some, like even the award that we got, they're like, okay, basically tell us why you're great, but you can only do it in like 400 words or something. And then if you have proof, sure, but like, they don't care. Like they never talk to you. They don't confirm anything. So it's like, whereas I feel like a community service award is like, it's going to be pretty, you know, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I feel like some of those would be a little bit harder. You can't just fake that. You'd have to actually be doing something for the community. Yeah, of that course. I mean, and you know, even this group that I looked at this year, some of the nominees I know personally, and they are tremendous people. And there's sometimes people who win individual awards that I know are tremendous people, okay? But, you know, I've always had a problem with award shows. I had a problem with award shows when I knew that two of the people who were put into the Mortgage Hall of Fame, one was a convicted, unpardoned felon, like that's a fact, 
And yeah. another one was a relentlessly well-known assaulter of women. Okay. Like, you know, when I pointed it out to them, they even went back to the women on the committee and said, Hey, did you know this guy was really bad with women? And they said, Oh yeah, yeah. He sort of accosted me a couple of times. So that was years ago. I sort of gotten over it. Okay. Like seriously, it was like unbelievable. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so easy. yeah, I'm kind of soured on awards. I mean, let's just do good. Get better at your business get, and, and, get, I, and, do, and do better for the client, do better for the yeah. client. And get, do better with the client. I feel like there is there is a marginal marketing value to it because consumers use it as a shorthand for you sure. must be good. Sure. However, if you just focus on being good, it won't even matter because you'll generate more referrals. Your process will create deals. And so for me, I had to be like, I'm not playing the game and I'm kind of a little bit obstinate like you. Not as obstinate as you, I don't think. But uh, I'm nobody's like, I'm obstinate not, as me. No, no. Yeah, no. Like you get an award for that if there was an award. And so I. Biggest a hole like, award. Ron, step yeah. up. We don't even need nominations. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, okay. This last kind of topic I want to touch on is like mortgage tech companies that we've seen come in and get tons of money dumped into them. What's going on there? What are you noticing? And I'm just curious your thoughts on it. The saga continues. The saga continues. um, But many of them have had to pull back. Many of them have had to stop their advertising, highly curtail their advertising. Many of them have had to raise rates. You know, Christopher Hitchens wrote a fantastic book on a totally different subject. But the title was so great. The title of his book was No One Left to Lie To. Okay. So eventually, companies that don't make money don't really know how to make money and just disintegrate venture capital money, eventually there's no more money. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have to change their ways. They have to pull back the insane advertising. They have to, you know, lay off people. They have to do things to try to right size and, and attempt to right size the company. And for some of those companies, we are seeing that happen right now. Okay. That is going mm-hmm. on right now. You know, they pulled back, they've gotten quiet, they've pivoted, the famous pivot. Oh, we really don't want to be in the consumer mortgage business anymore. We're going to sell our tech to the banks, okay? Like, it's just a new lie. Look, there's some guys going to be around, okay? Some guys going to be around. As I mentioned to you on the last episode, these folks at Quest Trade who run Quest Mortgage, they're very, very smart guys. They have decent pockets. They're good business people, and they probably are not going to go away. They're going to keep on pushing the Quest Mortgage product, and they're probably going to do a pretty good job. They come from a group of smart operators. If you can be smart in the wealth business, and they've proven that they're smart about wealth and about investment, mm-hmm. that tells me that you just you're going to eventually find the right people to be smart about mortgages and do a good job. Same thing with Rocket. You know, they come from a great pedigree. Now things are really different in the states, though. I touched on that in the last episode, as you well know, because you deal with folks in the states. The margin in the states are much, much bigger than ours. You can have as much as 300 beeps margin in the states as a mortgage brokerage. And, you know, yeah. here we're compressed down to like, in some cases, just like 100 beeps. And if yeah. you're a crazy ass discounter like me, you're down to like 45, 40. So <laughs> imagine if you were in the states, Ron, how much money you could make. I'd see you with a gold chain on. You'd be like, this is amazing. I love this country. You know, like the model that you run, I think would absolutely uh, crush. So. Hey, man, thanks for coming to chat with me. As always, I enjoy these conversations. I always pick up little nuggets. And yeah, this was fun. So thanks, brother. We'll get you back on again. I appreciate it. Always good to be here, Scott. Thank you for having me. All right. Hopefully you got some ideas and insights and even entertainment from my conversation with Ron. If you want to go check out the Leads Not Awards recording that had eight people present lead generating strategies that you can get a copy of for a donation to the Brokers Who Care organization that donates money on behalf of mortgage brokers. So every dollar goes towards one of those causes. Check that out at leadsnotawards.com. 
And in this next segment, I talk to Tom about the low supply environment and what you should be doing. Hey, Tom, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. So, hey, what are we going to dive into today? Yeah, so this is something that's come up a bit, and this is just kind of based on, you know, rumblings, I would say, from what I'm hearing on the street of kind of what's going on. And yeah, it's called a good news, bad news type situation where, hey, demand seems to be creeping back. People seem to be interested. You know, pre-approvals are really going up, which is great. But the bad news side of it is that the supply is not responding the same way. And so you're starting to get kind of this mismatch a little bit where there's this creep in demand, but the supply is not quite there. And so what I wanted to talk about today is, you know, with that environment in mind, kind of a low supply environment, what are the things you should be doing or keeping in mind to set yourself up for success? Right. I think that's a good point, actually. It seems like that's a common theme across all markets right now. So yeah, you're going in... to be your first sort of tip or piece of advice for somebody, you know, how do you do well or thrive in a low supply environment? Well, yeah. So I think the first one to kind of keep in mind, and you know, like a lot of these things, it's about setting expectations for yourself and for your team and that. And I think the one of the first ones is understanding that you know, the house hunt, as I call it, right? So that process of from when maybe you've pre-approved someone to when they actually have an offer in place, you know, that process is going to take quite a bit longer, especially with that increased demand. There's a lot more competition. And so the amount of time it could take for someone to, you know, from the point that they're interested now to, Mm -hmm. you know, in the future, actually finding a place, putting in that offer could be longer than you're expecting. And so, you know, I think we had those types of situations even in probably in the past two years. And so it's not too new necessarily, but I think what is new is some of the lessons that, you know, we've learned from that time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, specifically what we see a lot of people doing right now and really trying to get a handle on is, you know, just more or less automating, if you will, a lot of those touch points, right? So right. I think we've had- So like, give me an example of one that you've seen some agents do. So with your guys' software, what are you seeing that's effective that- mortgage brokers are doing with these kind of pre-approvals that are sitting there sometimes weeks or months at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Months, right. It's absolutely months. And yeah, I think what we see people doing successfully is, you know, a couple different things. One would be creating a regular cadence, right? So, you know, a lot of people kind of say, okay, I'll check in in a week, check in two weeks, but understanding that that could extend much further. So how do you get it really on a normal cycle, something that could go on indefinitely? And those are things you mm-hmm. can really do in blue to kind of say, okay, we'll repeat this until, you know, we get that offer. Or we actually start underwriting this directly or something like that. So that's one big thing. And then what we do that's really smart, even within a cycle though, is throwing in some variation. So saying, okay, well, first of the month, I'm going to call them, but then 15th of the month, I'm going to send an email. And then the 30th of the month, I'm going to shoot them a text, right? And right. then that's what you repeat. So to the client, it doesn't seem like you're just giving them the, the same, same thing, thing over and over again. And you can right. also kind of meet them where they're at. Another thing we've talked about. Where yeah, hit saying, them on okay, different modalities yeah. or like different channels and basically remind them that you exist and that you're around <laughs> and that you're there to help. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really good idea. So what will be your next sort of a piece of advice for how to do well in a low supply environment? Yeah. The other thing I think, and especially with that increased demand, lower supply, you know, the dynamic that's I'm starting to hear a lot more of is kind of these multiple offer type situations. We had a bit of a lull. Now it seems that they're back. So again, maybe taking some of those lessons from the craziness that was 2021, let's call it, you know, kind of getting something in place, standardizing, you know, those types of situations, setting yourself up for success. But more importantly, you know, setting up your realtor partners for success in those types of 
area. So making, first of all, sure your client knows kind of the details and really kind of the bounds and the limits that can exist within, you know, their pre-approval, but the realtor also understands that too, right? And it's something that you can be proactive with, that you can have that conversation with. And if you can do that to both your client and your realtor, we're really, you're kind of serving, right. you know, both so people. So give me an example of what kind of stuff are you seeing people do right. in a multiple offer situation that's been helpful? Well, I think it just comes down to, you know, understanding or I guess being proactive, I would say, to both the client and the realtor, because you know, what I see people running into is, you know, you'll tell the client one thing, but then maybe the client tells the realtor another thing. And then that creates a bit of a, a negative situation where, you know, there's not that transparency all the way across. And so some really cool things. And so what some top people are doing are things like pre-approval letters. So it's mm -hmm. something that they can very quickly spin up. They can sign. It's something that they can give to their client or directly to that realtor. And so there's transparency across it so that, you know, when these multiple offers come up and, you know, really push comes to shove, there's no ambiguity as to exactly what the limits might be within that pre-approval. Right. Yeah. The other thing I've seen people do, some of our agents would do, like, we call it like offer assist, which is sending a video to the listing mm -hmm. agent with a short little explanation, obviously not personal details, but just a glowing endorsement of the borrower in order to get that cool offer to get to the top of the pile. And we've had situations where they, they've won and even situations where they weren't necessarily the highest, right? Like it was mm -hmm. like, not, we're not talking about by like, if nobody's stupid enough to think, but it was out by maybe a little tiny bit. And they still were like, I want the offer that looks like, I don't want the headache of having to re go get another offer to replace it. So yeah, that's awesome. a good idea. Cool. But, um, we did that. I, yeah. I don't know if I told you that, but we did that not with our broker, just ourselves. We wrote a letter and we did that and we weren't the top bid. And we got this, you know, this condo that you're seeing. So yeah, yeah like, those types of things. It does yeah. work. You it does work, right? It. You humanize yeah. the offer yeah. instead of it just being paper and it can make, you know, it doesn't always work, but it's all, you know, increasing your probability. I think everything is like, if you had a 50% chance, if you can increase it to 65, then right. it's better. It's all stuff. Like, yeah. You're never going to get think Maybe that comes out of that too, is, you know, that now listing agent is really impressed saying, hey, yeah. maybe and I want to work with you, right? Listing yeah. agents become referral partners for our people because they're like, hey, like, this is awesome. And now next thing you know, I believe everything can be marketing. I tend to think like, <laughs> can I go to the mailbox and how do I turn that into marketing? You know, like that, <laughs> that's how my brain works. Yeah. And maybe a trip to the mailbox, I couldn't, but maybe I could. I think um, you could. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that. Can Somehow, I do a trip yeah. to the mailbox and turn it into marketing? <laughs> I probably could actually. It could probably be yeah, like, hey, look, I'm picking up checks from my agents and they're on a 100% commission split. Like, <laughs> That's right? the like, challenge for next week, I think. Come back yeah, with a mailbox. Uh, I'll marketing. do a video on that. Like, oh my yeah. gosh. Okay, so uh, yeah. house hunt takes longer, right? So then you got to stay in touch. Yep. Multiple offers. So thinking about how can you can stand out. What will be another the kind of tip for a low sky right. environment? Well, I think they have reality with it, especially again with this maybe creeping demand on that side of things, is that the reality too is that conversion rates might be a little bit lower. So let's say in a normal environment, you get 10 people who might want to work with you and maybe you end up, you know, working with eight of them and then, you know, six find a place very quickly or something like that, right? All those numbers are going to start to drop. Maybe you start with 10 and then, you know, you're actually only finding a place for two or three of them. And so mm -hmm. I think the trick with that is I'm only getting the two or three at the end. So, you know, that's really what I care about. But I still want to make sure I'm serving, you know, all 10 at that top of the funnel. And I think the tip and again, what we see a lot of people doing is saying, OK, well, let's look at that top of the funnel and how can I automate that? So those people still feel that they're being served. I'm still providing that level of service that I'm used to, but I'm not completely spinning my wheels there. And I can really focus right. on that two or three that made it through where, you know, that's going to make an impact to my bottom line.
right? So finding right, right. that balance and automating where you can at the top of the funnel. Right. So the people that are a little bit further out in terms of like, they're not ready to buy yet, or they can't find that, but maybe they just can't find something. So. Right. But, exactly. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like the coaching and stuff that I've done in the past with salespeople or like really good salespeople is that not everybody deserves the same amount of your attention. And it's not mm -hmm. you're being rude. It's that you have to like prioritize. You have to be a little bit ruthless in your prioritization of who gets your attention time. So that doesn't mean though that somebody else can't be doing the follow-up. Some could be using software, like in your case, yep. could be using somebody on your team, but you know, that doesn't mean you don't treat them well. It's just, you have a limited amount of time and you have to put it into the activities yep. that are going to move the, the limited the resources. Yeah. And I mean, and that can change over time, right? The person today who maybe doesn't get your attention, maybe tomorrow does. Right. So, you know, these things aren't fixed, so you can still give that level of service to everybody. Yeah. You only have so many hours in a day. So give it to the most, you know, I guess furthest along people that are going to make the biggest impact to your business. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So any kind of final thoughts on this whole tips for making money in a low supply environment? No final thoughts, maybe just to quickly recap, you know, the three kind of big things taken away is that, okay, house hunting is going to take a bit longer. So how do you kind of get, make sure you're staying in touch throughout, you know, it could be an indefinite period of time. Two, more offers are going to be on the table now. Realtors are going to be in maybe a higher stress environment. And so driving that transparency, not just to the buyer's realtor, which is what I was thinking about, but you even mentioned the seller's realtor all the way through, which is pretty cool. So making sure you're being proactive with that. Make your offer stand out as much as make you can. Make it stand like, out. You know, yeah, make it, right. Make it, Absolutely. Put some sizzle on that offer, man. <laughs> a mistake. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then finally, just with this environment, conversions will be lower inherently. Yeah. And so how do you look at that top of the funnel, automate as much as you can, make sure people still feel served, but be you know, almost strategic about how you're spending your time each day. Right. Yeah, I love it. So if you're listening to this, Tom's got a fantastic company called Blue Mortgage. Go to bluemortgage.ca with the BLU and uh, they can help you do a demo, give you a tour of how they can do all this stuff for you, plus a whole bunch more. I mean, your guys' software comes with like a ton of other tools beyond just the CRM. Like you can eliminate probably a half dozen other pieces of technology with it. So it's pretty great. So check it out. Thanks, Tom, for coming to chat with me and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to this conversations with Ron and Tom. Hopefully you were inspired and informed about a couple of new things. If you're a mortgage broker and you want some ideas for your mortgage business, I encourage you to go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com, set up a free power search account where you can literally keyword search every single past episode. There's hundreds and hundreds of them in there. Whatever word you type in, it will jump you right to those key moments in all these episodes. Fantastic for research. And honestly, you can build out an entire mortgage business just by climbing through the archives of all these conversations. Check that out. And thanks again for uh, listening to this show. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.